Hello, I'm Rich Blundell, the scientist in residence at the Mariah Mitchell Association. In the next three episodes of the Nature of Nantucket podcast, we'll meet an extraordinary scientist. Dr. Ursula Goodenough is a biologist whose many distinctions include being an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The long-awaited second edition of her beloved book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, is being released by the Oxford University Press in early 2023. You can learn more at sacreddepthsofnature.com. Like Mariah Mitchell was in her time, Professor Goodenough is a scientist committed to living life with a religious orientation. In her case, it is through the paradigm of religious naturalism. The key to this perspective is reference to, and reverence for, the epic, all-encompassing story of the cosmos, also known as Big History. Listeners may know that this is a subject of my own research, and a story that's near and dear to my heart. Okay, so we've touched a little bit on how the origins of life on the planet, and by the way, um, how would you characterize the plausibility of that? Because I remember, you know, when I was a little kid thinking, man, the difference between something that's alive and not alive is the difference between some, you know, magic and non-magic. It clearly happened, okay? So this is a model, and I choose this model because I like it the best, but also because it's a good vehicle to present to my readers a lot of concepts that I think are important for the rest of the book and for their thinking, uh, such as emergence, emergent dynamics, and so on, because that's all in the origin. Um, You're probably familiar with the fact that the origin of life theory that you usually hear is is called the RNA world, and you start out with information. You start out with a polymer of um, ribonucleic acids, and then this polymer somehow is can serve catalyst, which is true of modern um, RNA as well, and so it sort of catalyzes its own replication. So that's easy. You get more of these molecules. Uh, the problem is, or the challenge is to then explain how this string of nucleotides came to code for something like an autocatalytic cycle. And it seems easier for me to start with an autocatalytic cycle and an autogen and then add instructions over evolutionary time to make, which when added, of course, is a big plus for any organism. If you have instructions for how to get uh, make yourself, you don't have to um, come up with it each time yourself. Mm. So you say that you, you choose this particular model for the origin of life because you, it, it appeals to you. But the fact is that there are actually several plausible models. And I just want to point that out. And, but also just the fact that there are several plausible models in itself is a kind of profound thing, which su- almost points to this idea that life is not that hard to do once you have the right conditions and the right ingredients for it. And so it may, it may actually come about through different means or, or, or even multiple times it may start and stop or, which I think has something to say about how life may be evolving, you know, elsewhere, like on other planets and things like that. Oh, sure. On other planets, you know, anything goes and other experiments 
could well have happened in on the early Earth. I mean, nowadays a new experiment would probably be gobbled up by an amoeba right away. <laughs> but in the yeah, early on, Earth, on, the planet on, was, on Earth, yeah, yeah, right. Once yeah. <laughs> once there's a lot of uh, once there's a lot of players, yeah. it's, it's hard to make it yeah, make yeah. it happen. So it's probably yeah. not going to show up again anytime uh, uh, in the, on the history of Earth, um, even though we have billions of years to go. Um, yeah, and uh, I think the we can say that whatever happened back there, I think that this notion of common ancestry and this entity that's called the LUCA, L-U-C-A, the last universal common ancestor, is a very important concept for listeners to understand that mm -hmm. that critter, um, however it arose, uh, and being for sure much more complicated than the original, um, is... Uh, has all of the ingredients for everything that's alive today, including humans. Mm -hmm. um, can we, and this may just be for me because I'm fascinated and I teach this stuff and I'm always looking for the latest ideas about these things, but I focus a lot on the membrane, uh, the phospholipid membrane, not so much as a wall that keeps things out, but as a kind of surface of discernment that lets certain things in and certain things out What's your take on the function and the power of, of something like a membrane, a lipid membrane? Well, yeah. So, of course, lip, lipid membranes came along because the LUCA had a lipid membrane for sure. And in the autogen model, it's little shapes. There's triangles and diamonds and everything to be totally agnostic about what the materials are. And that just makes it easier to ask what the basic principles are. But... Uh, so the capsid looks like a virus, but, uh, and there are still, of course, many viruses that have capsids, but at some point a phospholipid membrane showed up for sure and is now used by everybody and used three billion years ago. And it's in that membrane, as opposed to in the capsid, it's in that membrane that these receptors for figuring out what's going on, are embedded. That's where the channels are for letting things in and out. That's where the pumps are for pumping ions in and out. And so the cell membrane that surrounds every cell uh, plays a critical role in uh, being a self. Well, let me ask you this, and this might be a stretch, but I, I kind of want to stretch things a little bit. So if you're saying that the, the membrane is universal because it's a really it's a really popular way to metabolize things and to just to get along to make a living. What about its role in communication? So, for example, if if I have my cells have membranes and my dog's cells are all membranes, and these membranes are miscible and so, to some degree that they you know they can they can cross each other's boundaries because they're because that's just the nature of of lipids to fuse and and um, commingle, I guess is the word. I mean, do you have any thoughts about how there might be mechanisms in all organisms to share biomolecules or anything like that? Has that crossed your radar at all? Or does that seem like an well, interesting I, uh, well, thing? Of course there is. I mean, so if, if you're talking about fusing and commingling of membranes, that's, I mean, I could take a dog's cell and a human's cell and put them down on a plate in the lab and add something and the two cells would fuse together. So our membranes are po 
perfectly able to commingle. But I don't think that's what you're talking about. Let's take the membrane on dogs on one of the olfactory receptors in a dog's nose. So as you know, mm. dogs live in smells, okay? And so they are, their noses are studded with receptors for odors. And once uh, any odor that binds to its particular receptor, then uh, that depolarizes the nerve, the brain notices, and the dog responds either by you know, going towards or running away or whatever. So uh, the dog is choosy. So this is formally the same thing as our autogen, okay? Um, so smells that the dog picks up are, of course, odors that emanate from our own bodies. Um, and so the dog is picking us up. And similarly, our, we can smell the dog <laughs> and its various odors. Now, that's communicating to human dog communication via odors and those odors are uh, transmitted to me and to the dog via membranes so is that where you are or do you want well that's to yeah that, well that's what I'm, it further no i don't just <laughs> want to take it further i just want to know okay. you know is, is that a is that a mechanism for some kind and i'm using the words loosely here but some kind kind of communication and and what like what sort of what is it pheromones is it you know what what can be communicated in this way yeah well sure well some if we if we do odors then of course some of it is just uh the odor from, let's say, a food that the dog or me or both of us are interested in. You mean like a, a molecule? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the smell of a steak or cooking on the grill, okay? Let's, both the dog and I are interested in that. And that, that's a very complicated mix of odors. But then there are also pheromones. So a dog, of course, detects a female in heat from, from miles away. Um, and are, are, let me ask you this. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but are those pheromones yeah. then, are, are they carried within a membrane-bound vesicle? No. Okay. Okay. No. The pheromones are just out there as chemicals. Gotcha. They, okay. they, yeah. Um, and, I mean, they're pheromones in moths or pheromones. I mean, pheromones, they're things like that in the bacterial world, the fungal world. So the whole idea of... Uh, if you're a sexual organism, then finding somebody to mate with is often, that information is often conveyed via pheromones. That's um, really interesting because, I mean, that opens a whole can of emotional content, correct? I mean, like if, uh, that... Well, yeah, that I are, mean, the, the, the end is uh, the, the question of whether... We, we probably should get awareness organized a little bit in our minds as we keep talking. So... I, I would say that all organisms are aware, um, and I would say that that awareness has evolved to suit the needs of the particular critter. So a tree is aware of where the light is, and its roots are aware of where the minerals are, and th there's awareness everywhere in the tree. Um, I differ from some of my... Uh, some other people who are thinking about this and that I don't think it's helpful to say that the tree is conscious because I think it's useful to have a word that 
describes the awareness of animals with brains, i.e. all animals. So conscious awareness is what animals do. And animals, you know, go all the way down uh, to snails or whatever. And, you know, snails um, are, their brains, even though they don't look much like our brains, do the same kind of stuff we do. They take in information about the outside, they process it, they can remember, and the brains then organize the body's responses to whatever mm-hmm. it is it's taking in. I, I, don't, I don't really know what snail's mating system is. I don't know whether they have pheromones or not, but um, there's certainly pheromones everywhere. The insects are loaded with them. We, we can move on from this, but my intention was not to okay. transgress any sort of conventional ideas of consciousness and that kind of thing. Only just to say that the fact that we are awash in molecules of communication with other living things, I think can open up a channel of connection or some kind of kinship to the, just to the living world. That the fact that we, that we know that that's the case can have an impact on the way we experience the world. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that was really my, my point. And I, and I guess I'm, I'm really just building on what you've already, which, which you've already proposed is that understanding the science can, can trigger, you know, an understanding that changes our relationship to the world itself. And, and, and that's somehow important today. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> so, okay. And so, then let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's just uh, unpack science for a second. I mean, science, doing science is a way of asking questions. So humans are curious about the natural world. They do experiments. We've probably been doing cavemen, hunter-gatherers, and everybody. They were doing science whenever they figured out that they could you know, make a pot out of clay or, or um, a weapon out of, of um, minerals. Um, you know, so it's, it's asking how the world works and getting answers that, importantly, usually those answers suggest a technology, such as making pots or making weapons or planting seeds in the ground. So mm-hmm. when the technology works as a result of the scientific understanding – then we tend to say, well, this understanding must be true because when I apply it, um, it gives me an arrowhead. So Mm. science is a way of asking questions and helping us understand nature all the way down, all the way out. And then what we do with those understandings has been uh, to make stuff as a in response to what we understand. And the religious naturalist says, yeah, making stuff is great, but it's at this point, it's a coherent story, not just what metals are like or what seeds are like. It's the whole shebang. And it has potential for orienting our religious lives. Mm. Okay. How do we get there then from, from here? So we've talked about, you know, (laughs) <laughs> abiogenesis we talked about membranes and and you know potential communication and and now you've started talking about a religious orientation and you know an ethos uh for social living that kind of thing how do we get there how do we make those connections well it's it's everybody's choice as to how they organize their existential understandings um and some people organize them around traditional faiths and some of us are saying, hey, there's this new story out here. Let's check it out and see 
whether it gives us what we're looking for. And I, for one, have found that it does, and a bunch of others of us have as well. So we call it, we've given it a name. <laughs> there are lots of other names. I mean, you know. Religious naturalists? Yeah, but, you know, some people call themselves spiritual nat naturalists. Some people call themselves atheo-pagans. I mean, there's lots of different groups, just as there are lots of different ways of configuring Christianity or Judaism or Islam. So how do you imagine that this understanding manifests, you know, in the world collectively? Like, obviously, we're in, we're in a time of... You know, you could, I think it's kind of a crisis. We're in a kind of crisis. Some people call it a meaning crisis. So how can this way of understanding the world and being in the world translate to some kind of better world? Have you, do you have any ideas on that? Sure. Well, most of the, the big crises that I see happening now are ecological. I mean, if we don't figure out how to take care of the place, then... Uh, it's not going to be very helpful to have other ideas. <laughs> uh, so to my mind, it's by far the best story around uh, to center and uh, yield uh, eco-moral behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we really consider the planet and its critters to be sacred, and if we see ourselves as a critter within that matrix, then preserving, restoring, etc., somehow figuring out how human cultures can coexist with the rest of nature is a commandment. Hmm. So maybe I'll it's put you on the no spot. It's a no-brainer. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> now, so, now uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. but, you know, uh, how, how to go from the fact that I understand that and maybe you understand that and maybe, you know, a thousand people who have joined the Religious Naturalist Association understand that and how to have this become um, a planetary ethos is, of course, to be determined. Are you willing to talk a little bit about what you think the forces that would resist this might be? Like, and, and like, what are, where do those come from? I mean, we, what are they? Oh, okay. Well, in order to um, take care of the place, we obviously have to stop destroying it. And uh, the people who are destroying it, like the people who are pulling oil out of the, um, out of the earth and so on, um, and making money off of that, are obviously not interested in stopping that practice. So, I mean, that's just an easy example. People who want to pave everything over and... Uh, Buildings are obviously not going to be interested in this idea. So it, I mean, I could go on, but you obviously know what I mean. <laughs> I do know what you mean. Lots of, and, yeah, lots of people who see nature as a resource rather than as a gift. And uh, the resource people just figure that we can just keep uh, using it for, to, for our own human advantage. And... Uh, have some zoos with some cute animals in them and uh, a few nature preserves and it'll all be great. 